I had a joke actually planned to start off this sermon, and uh, thought I should. I thought maybe I should practice this joke on Jordan first. So I did, and when she didn't laugh at all, I'm like, okay, that's scratched from the outline. That's coming out. Um, my name is uh, Tim. My wife and I have been uh, serving here as members of Genesis for the last six years, and um, I counted a great privilege to be able to preach to you all this morning. Let's set our attention on heaven. Uh, please go with me in prayer. Father, we look to you in this moment. Lord, you, you know my heart. You know how I love the praise of men, and I like to look good. Um, but Father, this moment is not about me. It's not about the people in this room. It's about you being exalted and lifted high. And so we ask, would you do that? Spirit of God, spirit given to exalt and make much of Christ, would you do that in our hearts in this moment, would Jesus be exalted? Would you give me clarity of thoughts to communicate what's on my heart from the Bible? And would you give everyone in this room, including even myself, ears to hear, Father? If there's unbelief, if there's cynicism, if there's hardness of heart, Spirit, only you can change that. So I ask, would you come? Would you be exalted in this moment? It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. The title of my sermon is The Way of Glory. The main thrust of this passage is God has chosen to glorify himself through the death of Christ. Again, the main thrust of this passage is God has chosen to glorify himself through the death of Christ. The term glorify, I think it would be good to, to define that because, um, you know, there's a lot of different thoughts on what does it mean to glorify. And I think Hans has been helpful with a, a definition for glory or to glorify. Simply Making God known. Anything that makes God known. So to say the main thrust of this, this passage again, it is, to, it is that God has chosen to make himself known through the death of Christ. We have seen already throughout the book of John that John's main focus is to glorify to make much of Jesus and for you and I then to look to him and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 12, 20 through 36, my text is no different. That is the main thrust of this passage. That we have a text before us that is meant to focus in our attention on Jesus and God has and how God has determined that he should be exalted through Jesus in his death on the cross. That he should be lifted up not only in your hearts here in this room today, but throughout the world. 
the way in which God has determined to be glorified is through the death of his son. These verses that we're about to read, and particularly one, lays out the claim of Christ on your life. What is required of you as a follower of Jesus? Children, do you claim to follow Christ? Old people, do you claim to follow Christ? Well, here is what Jesus expects of you. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Those are hard words. But the key to following those words is not in your ability to do them or even in your lack of ability to do them. The key that we will see from this text, this passage of scripture, is that John puts the spotlight squarely on Jesus. He takes, there's, there is a verse or two specifically to what's required of us, but the focus is about Jesus being lifted high. Again, the main thrust of this text is the way that God has chosen to be glorified is through the death of Christ. So we are, are rounding up towards the end of John chapter 12 in what is called the book of signs in the gospel of John. And we're moving into what is called the book of glory. John transitions here with a story, a simple story about some Greeks who come to see Jesus. And so in this passage, we're going to see four movements. First, we're going to see Greeks seek Jesus. Then we're going to see the way of glory revealed. Then we see the way of glory magnified. And lastly, we're going to see the response to the way of glory. So please, let's use our imaginations. I want you all to come with me into this story. I want you to see yourself as a disciple in this story. So first, Greeks seek Jesus. Verses 20 through 22. And I've, I've, I've lumped in here as well, verse 19. Verse 19 says this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing anything good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's interesting. The Pharisees are frustrated. They have tried everything they could to stop people from turning to Jesus. And they're frustrated in this moment because people continue to be drawn. People continue to come to Christ. And in this moment, the Pharisees look at each other and say, great job, guys. Now the whole world has gone after him. And guess what the next verse says? Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to the feast. It seems as if it's happening. The Pharisees give this pejorative comment, but it seems John is writing this in such a way to take us along to say, yeah, Greeks are now coming seeking Jesus. I think it's important to see 
that this word Greeks here is actually Hellenists, which it's important to realize these are, these are Gentiles and not just Jews that have been scattered during the Babylonian exile and are, uh, you know, in other parts of the world. These are actual Gentiles who are not part of the Jewish, Jewish faith. These Greeks come to Philip. Now, Philip's name is Greek, and so that may be one of the reasons why they came to that disciple. The Greeks come to Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Here's the main thing we have to catch. Gentiles are starting to seek Jesus. This seems to be the beginning. This is what has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that that God's heart is really not just for his people, but God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is that people from every tribe and tongue and land will come and worship before the risen Lord. Hear this from Psalm 102. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Isaiah 52, 15, which is is a verse we've just recently been memorizing in our discipleship groups. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not understood, what they had not heard, they will understand. It seems like the moment is coming. Jesus is starting to be sought by the nations. Philip then comes and tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip then go and tell Jesus. Consider his disciples. Consider them for a minute. These are common, working-class folks. There's nothing really special in and and of themselves with these disciples. But they have been chosen by a local teacher. And this local teacher is claiming to be something so much more than they could ever even dream possible. Hope is starting to arise in their souls. Could it be true what Jesus is claiming to be, could this actually be the reality that this man is the Messiah, the one chosen? There has to be some anticipation in these men's souls. There has to be. Jesus has just rode rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And what were they saying as he rode in? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they come in during Holy Week. There's already this anticipation for something great. And now Gentiles are coming to seek the Lord. The time seems to have come. And how does Jesus respond? We transition here in the story to now the way of glory revealed. Verses 23 through 26. And let's keep in the front of our minds that God has chosen to make himself known through the death of Christ. Jesus responds to his disciples by not even really, it seems, addressing the Greeks. Seems like he turns to the crowd and to his disciples 
And he says this, verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The moment has arrived again and again. Jesus had said throughout the gospel of John, my time has not yet come. And this seems to be the moment. His hour has come. His disciples had to think after they told him that. And he says, the son of man has come to be glorified. They had to have been excited. They were waiting for this moment. That's why they're following Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus uses this term, son of man. Daniel chapter 7 While Daniel was in the Babylonian exile, he said this. He had a dream and he said this. And listen for the word, son of man. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man was presented with a kingdom, and Jesus has just said, the hour has come for the Son of Man. This seems to be the moment prophesied. The disciples had followed him with this dream in mind, Time for Christ to rule and reign in Jerusalem and set up his kingdom. I think that thought had to be there. But here's what Jesus says directly after the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you think they were expecting to hear that? No, I think they were actually expecting to hear the exact opposite. In their hearts and in their minds, the way in which Christ would establish his kingdom is through force. They were probably expecting a battle strategy. I mean, we know Peter had the sword on his hip. Because he cuts off a man's ear not too, too long from now. These men were not expecting what Jesus said. Which is a simple farming illustration that they all would have understood. Jesus was just saying, for a grain of wheat to propagate and produce more, it must be buried and covered with dirt for the life within that kernel to reproduce. My family and I are uh, becoming urban farmers in our own right, uh, which it, it may be better to just say we, we really like to garden, um, and uh, even more so, my wife really likes to garden, and now Job, along with her. Right now, you know, the great thing about Houston is you, you can garden year-round. So right now, Jordan is preparing her fall garden. So she has trays with little cells. She takes these little cells and puts dirt into those cell or into those little cups. 
She puts one seed into each one of those little cups. And then she covers it up. She puts it on the back porch. And then we just wait. Every morning for a few days, Job will run out as soon as he wakes up and he'll go look on the back porch very closely to see, is there life coming? Has the miracle taken place? Has it gone from death to life? In this illustration, Jesus is saying, I am like that seed. I too must go down into the earth and die. In this one statement, in Jesus' actions that follow on the cross, he is establishing the nature of his kingdom forever. And this kingdom is different than any other kingdom that's ever been on the face of this earth. Every other system, every other nation, the way in which it's established is by how. When you guys live in this world, you know how it works. Power, assertion of self, strength, weaponry. I mean, we're seeing how Russia is asserting its authority right now. That is every kingdom. And Jesus comes in this one statement and says, I'm establishing a kingdom that will last forever. And the way in which this kingdom is established is not by assertion, but by death. And that's how it is for you and I. That is how this kingdom is established. And that's how you and I live in this kingdom, is by death. What does Jesus' glorification look like in this passage? What does his glorification look like in this passage? Yes, death, but the other side of it is multiplication. Let's, let's hear this again. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus went to the cross, and in this moment, with agony before him, with you in mind, Jesus went to the cross considering the fruit that would be born from his work. If you are in Christ, brother or sister, this morning, he was thinking of you. But here's the thing. It wasn't just you. It was us. It was his church in Houston. It was his church throughout the world. It was his church throughout the centuries. Jesus was saying, I'm going to the ground to die, but when I raise from the dead, I will bring many sons to glory. He will bring many to follow him through his death. We are, and I don't think it's wrong for you to think in very personal terms, Yes, it is global. This is the glorious reality of our faith. It is global. It's so much bigger than you. But you have to hear this. This is the most wonderful news you can ever hear. Jesus died with you in mind. 
You need to apply that. My, my prayer right now is that this most glorious of realities would be, would be applied to your heart. Jesus died on a cross for sinners like you and I. Paul said this is the most wonderful of news that ever could be. Now, this is the right context to hear Jesus' claim on your life as a disciple. The next verse, right after he talks about this kernel of wheat falling into the ground and dying, he says this. He turns his focus from himself to the crowd and the disciples, and he says, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Brothers and sisters, you need to feel the weight of those words. This is a warning that we as Americans do not like. We have it good, and in the words of Nacho Libre, real good. <laughs> not good with the accent. But here's, Jacob knows what I'm talking about. We have it good. There's some out there who would say, live your best life right now. Jesus is saying the exact opposite of that. He's saying if you really want to find your life, you got to die. If you really want to live, you got to lay down your life. That's the nature of this kingdom he's establishing. And here's the fact that you need to hear. Yes, Jesus died for you to take away your sins, but he also died to give you the power so that you can die. I just want that to sink in because that is a reality that I need to hear daily. I have, I have, you have, we all have things that we need to die to where we love ourselves a little too much. And again, the way in which you're going to live that out is not by how hard you try or how strong you are, or how great of a person you think you are. The way that you fulfill that is by seeing how great Jesus is and what he did on the cross for you. Paul says this in Colossians, and, and here's something I, I wanna mention just in passing because uh, this reality is so wonderful. It's this. You are unified with Christ. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. You are one with him. What does that mean? It means his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension is yours. The way in which you now die to your love of self is by looking to what Jesus did on your behalf. Hear this from Paul in Colossians chapter one. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I just wanna try to lace this thought 
the way in which God will be exalted among the nations, the way in which God will be exalted in your neighborhood and in your workplace is through Jesus in you. And you then having the ability to not love yourself, not promote yourself, not think great things about yourself, but to point the attention to Jesus, the greater one. Hear this in Galatians chapter two. This is a verse that I hope we all know. Paul is speaking in the first person here, but you can apply this to yourself. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's saying it right there. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Brothers and sisters, memorize that scripture. That is your way to power, to live out the Christian walk. Because here's the fact of the matter. What Jesus requires of you is impossible. You cannot do it. You can't. But you are no longer alive. Christ now lives in you as a follower of Christ. That is your power for living. That is your power for dying. That's your power for walking out this Christian walk. Some of you may be thinking, you know, Tim, this sounds really good. But like, what what does this really mean? What is ground zero reality where the rubber hits the road? Let me, I just want to start with two thoughts here. One is this. The choice is a matter of love. The choice is a matter of love. And I think you simply have to ask yourself, what do you love most? So you've got to, you, guys, I'm not, I, I don't want to give you the opportunity to not consider your own heart. And you have to ask yourself, what do I love most? Is Jesus the love of my heart? Is God the thing that I love and adore above everything else? That is your step number one. It's a matter of love. And step number two is this. How do I know what I love? I want to give you a very simple way that John actually in his epistles, he lays out again and again. The way in which we know if we truly love God is if we prefer others. If we consider others more important than ourselves. The way in which you know if the love of God is in your heart and if you're controlled by the love of God and you hate your own life because you love the life you have in Christ better is you're going to think others are more important than yourselves. That's it. Now, I'm going to go even more practical here for you. Husbands and wives. You know that moment when there's tension, you just feel it. Maybe your wife or your husband said something. Maybe they, they did something that you don't like, and there is tension. You've been offended. You will know 
If you're loving and loving God and hating your life in this world by how you respond in that moment, how do you respond? Is it after the kingdom of this world, assertion of self, I don't deserve to be treated that way? Or is it that you realize that you're dead and it's now Christ that lives in you? Here's another practical item for the young people in this room. Children, I'm gonna address you all a little bit later, but uh, young, young adults, young folks who are single, who have a lot of time, how is your time spent? The greatest thing that you have right now is your time. Is your time spent on games? Is it spent on finding as much fun as you can have? Is it spent just to get with my friends so we can be together? There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But if these things are more important in your life than Jesus and in serving and preferring others and giving of your time, there may be an issue of love in your life. Jesus says in verse 26, And I just want to remind us, the main thrust of this passage is that God has chosen to glorify himself through the death of Christ. Verse 26, Jesus says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying to his disciples, follow me. He's saying, come deeper. He's saying, there's something more that I want to show you. He's saying, really, this service to me is coming to be where I am. Remember, he just said, unless that kernel dies, it remains alone. And now he's saying, come, come be with me. John is getting ready to take us deeper into the beauty of the cross. My encouragement in this next passage is for you truly to worship God, to marvel at the beauty we're about to read and seek to understand and to be thrilled in your heart with what Jesus has done on your behalf. And where does Jesus take us? Where does John take us in these verses that follow? He takes us into a conversation between a father and a son. Some of the hardest and the most wonderful of conversations are the ones had between a father and a son. Jesus wants you to find your life in the midst of this most agonizing of conversations, yet this most beautiful, pure, and perfect conversation. So we've looked so far, Greeks seek Jesus, the way of glory revealed, the way of glory magnified. Or I'm sorry, now we're going to look and see the way of glory magnified. Verses 27 through 33. Christ's anguish before the cross 
and the father's response. Hear Jesus as he cries out to his father. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus is in great anguish. His soul is troubled. Why? Why is Jesus in anguish and his soul troubled? Do you think it's because of the pain Jesus is about to experience in the days that we're leading up to? Do you think it is that shame, that, that suffering he's going to get on that cross, the physical torment? I'm going to say no, I don't think it is that. That's part of it, but it's so much more. Jesus is in anguish because he is about to experience the very wrath, the very displeasure, the very anger of his father and separation from his father. Jesus has only ever known perfect, continual, constant fellowship, love between the father and the son in the spirit, it's been a perfect, loving fellowship between them for eternity past. And now in this moment, he is preparing for the anguish of experiencing God's wrath. Consider the sinners that he was dying for. Consider yourself as one of those sinners. You have only always known sin. Broken fellowship and separation from your heavenly father. That is what we have always only known. This sin has been caused by your own hands. It's not by accident. You've caused it. You've sinned against a holy God. The just penalty for your actions is death declared in the garden thousands of years before. Death, separation, and eternal punishment. Yet we hear Jesus, Father, save me from this hour. He is about to take on the sins of you and I and the sins of the world in this one moment. He's about to experience the very wrath of his father who he's only known perfect fellowship with. Jesus says, save me from this hour. Do you see the humanity of our savior? He was human. Your savior Jesus is acquainted with your deepest sorrow, your deepest hurt, your deepest brokenness, Brother, sister, the things that you've experienced, the things that you have done that only bring up pain and suffering, Jesus knows. He is acquainted 
with your grief. I would just encourage you, in this moment, you can flee and find comfort in Jesus. If you've had hardship, if you've had pain, if you're experiencing it now, know Jesus has been there. He wants to heal you. He wants to take your hurt and take it away. Jesus says to his father, save me from this hour. But then he says this, this most resounding of declarations. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He resigned himself to the perfect will of the father. He set his eyes on Calvary and he counted the cost of the shame, the sin, the wrath that he was about to experience. And here is the father's response to him as Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. The father looks down and he says, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The father looks at his son, broken. The father's heart is here broken for his son who he's about to crush. And he says, this will bring all glory to my name. With this work, I will redeem a people to myself and they will be the light that will show forth my greatness to the end of the earth. We, we then have a response from the crowd, verse 29 and 30. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered and others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. The crowd has just heard God from heaven declaring his love for his son and how his son will be glorified through him. And what does the crowd hear? Noise. At best, an angel. Would that not be the case with you and I? I know I'm up here imperfectly telling you God's word, but brother, sister, would your response to God's word not be hardness of heart? Would it not be that I do not understand? But would your response to God's word be all, all for Christ? Christ deserves my all. Would you give it all to him? Even in this moment, I wanna speak to you directly some may be just loving and flirting with this world at this moment. Jesus is worth more than that. He deserves it all. Hear his voice in this passage. God deserves your all. In verses 31 and 32, we have three results of the work of the cross. Jesus says this, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Three results of the work of the cross. One, judgment upon this world. This world system, the kingdom of this world established by assertion of self, Jesus is saying there's a new way, there's a new kingdom. 
And I'm coming to say this new way is the right way. By laying down your life. He was judging this world. Second, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is saying, I am going to disarm the strong man. I'm going to disarm Satan on the cross. I am going to crush the head of the serpent. I am that seed of the woman that was promised by my father. I will crush the head of the serpent. And ladies and gentlemen, the good news for you and I is that you no longer have to be in bondage to yourself, to this world, to Satan. You can know freedom and liberty in your life by dying and finding your life in Christ. Lastly, Jesus says, if I am lifted up, if I die, I will draw all men to myself. Remember, the main thrust of this passage is God has chosen to exalt himself through the death of Christ. And in this moment, he's saying that as I am lifted up, as I am exalted, all will come. People from every tribe and tongue and language will come and bow before me. And here's what I want you all to understand. I want you to understand this practical application. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mound, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The way in which you and I glorify the Father is by letting our light shine in this world. And that happens by us looking to the light, looking to Jesus, look to him, walk according to the light, and God is going to be glorified through you. I want to close here with the response to the way of glory. We have seen Greeks seek Jesus, the way of glory revealed, the way of glory magnified, and now we see the response to the way of glory. Jesus was speaking, John was speaking to his first entry audience, but I, I want to just make this very practical to you and I. I want to take, and I think I have uh, justice to do this with Scripture, to take these verses and apply them directly to us. Verse 34 The crowd then answered him and said, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? There's a lot to be unpacked there, but I just simply want to say they're confused. They're confused. And that confusion is no excuse for unbelief. For you and I... I know some of the things of the gospel may be difficult, but for you and I, there's, don't hide behind confusion. Hear these simple words of Christ that have been preached today. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe on his clear words to us. Jesus then says to the disciples and to the crowd, for, uh, this is verse 35 and 36, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness 
does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Walk in the light. He gives three practical ways of walking. The first one is for a little while. For a little while. He says to his audience, the time is short. And I would just simply say to you and I, do not wait until tomorrow. Do not keep loving this world. You do not have tomorrow. You do not have the promise of this great life here on earth where you can just stock up your 401k and be happy and marry. Plan now for tomorrow. Start losing your life today for Jesus. The second thing Jesus says in this passage is walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. I just want to tell you the darkness is real. The darkness is real. Loving this world more than Jesus, following the path of this world is the path of darkness. Don't think that you can just play with that path. It's wrong to say it plain. To love this world more than Jesus is sin. It's a path of darkness. Lastly, Jesus says this. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. I simply want to say, the bottom line is this. Will you believe in the words of Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you set your eyes again this morning on Jesus and believe in him?